0: And today I'll be reading for you and um, using for the sermon preaching out of Isaiah chapter 53, uh, the whole chapter. Hear now the very word of God. Who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. For he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Like a lamb that was led to slaughter, and like a sheep that was before its shears in silence, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he, has take, he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. Make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Faith comes from hearing. In hearing the word of God, let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this tremendous, amazing, extraordinary gift that we have in the suffering of Jesus Christ. It is not just the suffering that has brought us salvation, but it is the righteousness that, as Marus has already pointed out, that has been Granted to us, not our righteousness, for the righteousness of your Son has been laid, sprinkled, poured all over us. Father, we thank you for this tremendous gift, the gift of all gifts. Help us to understand it. Help us to be thankful. Help us to be those full of praise, to be humbled, and to proclaim it from the rooftops. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> for some that are visiting or some who have been out for a while, we are going through the Ten Commandments as a, an Advent sermon series, going through two commandments a Sunday and looking at these as gifts. So far, we have seen how the gift of Jesus Christ to the people of God is embodied by his fulfillment of the law. Jesus himself said that he came for that purpose, to fulfill the law. One, by way of him being God in the flesh, Emmanuel. He is with us. He fulfills the first commandment, first of all, by being God in the flesh. Without Jesus, we cannot have God. By drawing near to us first, we are able to draw near to him. Jesus saves us from our doom existing of existence of grasping at false gods. Christ's service and worship to the Heavenly Father, according to his Father's will versus his very own will, fulfills the love and obedience to the Father of his worship. He defeats Satan's temptation with adherence to the word and therefore establishes the promise of steadfast love For a thousand generations, because he first loved us, we are saved from the death of self love. Thirdly, Jesus has, but is also given the very name of God as Son of God, and by emptying and humbling himself to obedience, he is brought low so that he may be exalted. Therefore, he has the name above all names. To that he may have the authority to grant that name to those who his father has given him, those who he has won. Therefore, we now have his name, and it is by calling out to the name and authority of Jesus, we have salvation. Fourthly, Jesus came to work, but he came to work so that he may rest and grant us entrance into his rest. He has been given and earned the name Lord of Sabbath with the authority to give rest and mercy to mankind. His work and his rest saves us, and only our access to that hope and salvation is to rest in him. The gospel call of repentance and faith is ultimately a command to rest in Jesus Christ. The purpose of the law is to highlight our sin by highlighting the very character and person of Jesus Christ. But the law also highlights the very goodness and the promise of our salvation. Galatians 3 says, Why then the law? It was added because of our transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary, intermediary, Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. And to catch this question, is the law then contrary to the promise of God? I want to stop there just for a second because again, and I and I make this point often. I feel like in our world we're so antinomian, we're so anti-law, and we think about things as just all grace and no law. But here we have this question in Galatians that Paul is writing to the church in Galatia, saying, "Is the law then contrary to the promises of God?" And he says, "Certainly not. For if the law had been given that, <clears throat> for if a law had been given that could give life," then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believed. Now that's some pretty hefty wording there, but ultimately it is that the law is not just delivering to us the righteousness and character of God, which condemns us and shows us that we are unrighteous, But if Jesus Christ is our gift, and with the Advent season we are looking forward to the promise and the hope of Jesus, then the law is also highlighting the very benefits of that gift. For us who have been redeemed, for us who have repented and believed and holding on to Jesus Christ, the law now describes for us our tremendous gift. Advent is about promise. And although this statement might cause, the this, this statement that I'm about to make might cause some kids that are taught faithfully by their parents to do a double take, Christmas is actually all about gifts. Now that typically goes against every, wow, look at that look I just got. <laughs> what? Yes, we've been taught all of our life, you know, it's not about the gifts, it's not about presents. Yes, it is. But it's, the question is, what gift? What gifts? Are we most celebrating? Yes, it may not be the little tinker toy that you're hoping for. No, that is not the primary element, but it is all about gifts. I was talking to Sophia on the way in this morning. It's kind of like if you can imagine in a situation on a, on a glorious Christmas morning where some child has been maybe given maybe a, a paid tuition, maybe given a brand new car, and maybe given a, a brand new house, but the kid, he, he finds this box that has a watch in it, and he tosses the watch and he plays with the box. and he loves the box, and the box consumes him. Now this kid is only three years old, and his level of maturity, the box is fascinating. <clears throat> Well, that, I think, is the way it is for many of us as Christians. We define in our mind who Jesus is, what that gift is. And in many respects, if you hear people's testimony, I am afraid that their understanding and definition of Jesus is is as deep sometimes as, as just a cardboard box. When there are greater gifts there, and the law actually highlights those gifts, And that's why it's been a desire for me to go through the law with you during this Advent season, is to point out to you that as we mature in faith and we go from milk to meat, to understand what great riches we have in the gift of Jesus Christ, that it's time for us to move on. You know, it would be as silly as us being like 25 or 35 or 45 and just being, you know, reminiscing about the box when we've been given so much in Jesus Christ. So going through the law with you is to shine that light and highlight those wonderful gifts. So we've gone through the first four commandments, but just like the third wise man said after the gifts of the gold and frankincense, there's myrrh, there's more to come. (laughs) I've been looking for a way to throw that joke in for a long time. So what is the 5th and 6th commandment? Can anybody tell me what the 5th commandment is? Honor your father and mother. mother. um, Did you say 6th? The 5th? Hold on. That it may go well with you in the land in which he has promised. 6th commandment. Um, Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not murder. As simple as that. So here in the 2 commandments, we... See, and and I hope that today I can show forth to you how Jesus and his fulfillment of these two commandments has brought really some of the greatest riches of our salvation that we can imagine. It does say that the fifth commandment is the first command with an explicit promise. And so we see very much when we think about Advent, it's about the anticipation of promise, the promise of Jesus Christ. And here in the fifth commandment, if we see that Jesus has fulfilled it, that there is a promise that comes to him that also comes to us. I chose Isaiah 53 for today's passage because it not only underscores how Jesus is the suffering servant. If you go back to chapter 52 and verse 13, you see where a lot of people have titled this particular chapter, the suffering servant or the servant who suffers, but that he is also the suffering son. He is, this, he is the servant's son because he is the shoot from the stump of Jesse, the true root that will bear true fruit. He is the promised son, but a son with a promised inheritance. And we see this in verse 2 of chapter 53. It says, For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. ground. Here we see that this promise of Jesus that's in Isaiah 53 is started here by looking at him as one that is going to grow up. But he is growing up as a root. And we know from going back to Isaiah chapter 11, that in Isaiah chapter 11, that Isaiah is making reference here to the root of Jesse, to the stump of Jesse. And it's a stump because it's been a tree that's been cut down. There has been temporary judgments. There's been annihilation being given to Israel. But there's a continued hope that all of the hope that was initiated in the tree of Jesse, which ultimately is David, in the kingdom of God, even though when it's cut down, there's something greater that's going to grow up from that. And we see here is a promise ultimately that we see in many other Advent passages is that there is a promise of a son. Chapter 11 of Isaiah, verse 1, it says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be In the fear of the Lord, we already see here that in this promise of this root, this son, this one that we can see in chapter 53, very clearly a suffering son, that there will be promise given to this son. Verse 10, in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand against as a, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him shall nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people. This hope of a Messiah is going to be by way of this root. The hope of the Messiah and promise is going to be by way of a son. 53 is a very popular passage of promise, but it relies on the reality that it is going to be Christ's sonship that is connected to this, servant, this suffering servant. Because Jesus is perfectly the faithful son of promise. Because he is going to be the one who can fulfill the fifth commandment perfectly, and he will receive the great promises of it going well with him, that we are beginning to understand that that inheritance is going to be the inheritance that is going to be transferred to us. But before I go too deep into that, we can see many stories. We know that Jesus is not the spoiled brat child, that we know that he is the obedient child. We know that there are, are examples of stories of a lot when you see sons that are of wealth and of, of esteem or some kind of great inheritance, that people often watch sons of someone who is wealthy to see how they're going to turn out. And in most cases, what do people anticipate by a rich son? What's the outcome? That he's going to be spoiled. What else? We'll Give some examples. What is, stuck up. He's going to be stuck up. Entitled. He's going to be entitled. He's not. And he's going. To, he's not going to know how to work. You know, this time of the year, a lot of people go to the Biltmore. I know. Last year, I took Alethea to the Biltmore, and we saw. You know, it's it's really well decorated. At Jennifer and I've also gone, and it's a very popular place. It's, it's a beautiful building. Who all's been to the Biltmore before? It's a it's a beautiful building. It's a, it's a great mansion. Now, it was built by a guy named George Vanderbilt. And he was the third generation of a poor person. Not so much poor, but a really working class person. I mean, they, they were working so hard, I don't know if they really considered themselves poor. George was a bit of a, of a different kind of guy compared to a lot of people in that situation because he was a nice guy. He wasn't that spoiled. People actually liked him. Now, he gave a lot of his wealth away. He was smart. He actually utilized his time to grow his mind, and he learned multiple languages, and he was very much involved in wanting to understand agriculture. He was very much involved in wanting to understand architecture, and that particular family grew to wealth very quickly, and he was able to not just enjoy it, but he was able to actually maximize it. But to the most part, people really did not have, even though they liked George because of his wealth, he didn't have an extreme amount of respect as much as his great his, his grandfather, Cornelius. Now, his grandfather, Cornelius, was a hardworking guy, and he came from a hardworking family outside of New York. And he wanted to get involved in the shipping industry. They lived on Staten Island, and for the people in Staten Island to be able to make a living, they had to get their goods to Manhattan. So for... Clearing a field for his grandmother of rocks. Now, has anybody ever cleared fields of rocks? That's one of the most miserable things, because they don't ever go away. <laughs> it seems like you can pick up rocks, and they, and they can seem to just be pulling up out of the ground more and more. But he cleared that field for his grandmother, and his grandmother loaned him $100. It's like she didn't even give him $100 for clearing the field. She said, I will loan you $100 if you will clear this field. And so he did. Now he was also very industrious because he got friends to do that with him. He says, "I'll give you rides on this boat that I'm going to buy for $100 to Manhattan if you help me clear this field." In time, he became a millionaire and being one who it was very much a commodore of the shipping industry in New York and made millions which would be equivalent to billions of dollars today. And we love that story because we see that he was willing to work. He was willing to get his hands dirty and to be able to do something that would bring that kind of respect. The reason why I'm giving you these stories is that Jesus is the epitome of that. He is the greatness of that, even beyond that. And that story brings in a truth about what sonship is, especially sonship of great wealth, because the Heavenly Father is the God of all things. And this is his son. And so that same understanding of what is a son going to be like, we can see that in the theme of his salvation as a Messiah for us, is that he's not going to be the spoiled brat, but he's not going to just be the one who's going to get his hands dirty. We see in chapter 53 that he's going to be the suffering son. And it actually goes beyond our understanding. It's like the story of Abraham with Isaac, We can't put our mind around this understanding of how God would command Abraham to sacrifice his son. But it is by that we see that Abraham is showing great faith. Here is where it goes beyond our understanding that it is the delight of the father to actually call his son to suffer. But why? Why would he cause his son to suffer? It is for his own glory, but we know that it is for the inheritance of all the other sons that are going to be his sons, his adopted sons. So we see this is a perplexing promise in Second Samuel 7 also when we think about the promises of Jesus to come. It says in Second Samuel chapter 7 from verse 12, it says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And this is where it gets to be perplexing. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. We know that this promise is It has different layers to it. This promise of David is talking about a more immediate son, but a long-term son, the great son. And so we know that there is going to be iniquity amongst the more immediate sons, but there's going to be a hope of a greater son. But we know that this passage, we know that anyone who's been studying the word for a long time, that this particular passage is ultimately about Jesus. But it says when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him. We know that there's a principle that it says that a father disciplines those who he he loves. So here's where it gets beyond our understanding is that Jesus is the perfect obedient son, but he is also going to continue to be the son to receive discipline. He must receive the discipline in the stripes of men, the sons of men, so that the steadfast love will not only depart from him, but depart from all those under him it's hard for me to even explain this but when we see this we now as we go into Isaiah 53 we see that everything that we see about Jesus' suffering is ultimately an access to his inheritance everything here is a parallel promise we cringe when we see this son suffering all the things that he suffers and we cringe even more when we see that it is because of us. Look at the words that we see here over and over again. Our griefs, our iniquities, we have turned away. The iniquity of us all. He is taking our iniquity. It is not him committing iniquity, but when we commit iniquity, and the discipline that came upon him is ultimately for us. So Isaiah 53 embodies the fullness of that this was, had to be a son because we see here that there is a splitting up of the spoil, a splitting up of the inheritance. And we know that this could only go to a true son. But for it to go to us, there had to be this violence. There had to be this killing. Very much that the fifth commandment is connected to the sixth commandment, that when Jesus obeys and fulfills the fifth commandment, he does the greatest fulfillment of the sixth commandment, which is the inversion of murder. He gives up his life. He has actually murdered himself. He has oppressed himself. He takes on murder himself in the most giving way that one could do of their life. More than anyone else, he perfectly fulfills the sixth commandment in obedience to the fifth commandment. In John 10, verse 17, Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I laid down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. His experience of murder and death is his perfect obedience and his perfect love of the Father and of us. He accomplishes the fulfillment, really, in these two commandments alone, if we highlight them. He fulfills all of the commandments of the royal law. He is completely faithful and obedient and given honor to his heavenly Father. And at the same time, he is loving his neighbor like himself. He fulfills the summary of the commandment that he actually explains himself by fulfilling the fifth and the sixth commandment. Jesus is perfectly obedient. But I want to bring it down a little bit, because when we think about it, like well, that is so beyond our understanding. Like the whole fact that, that he receives the discipline of the Father. But Jesus very practically does that too, very much immediately right after the Christmas story. If you go to Luke chapter 2, and at the end of Luke chapter 2, it's a, it's a kind of a fun story, and I know I've referenced it many times. I, I love this story, but it's, it's, it's very miraculous in my mind to even contemplate this. It's the to- story when Jesus was a boy, and they were finishing up Passover, and Jesus stayed at the temple while the parents left. And when he was at the temple, he was asking the leaders questions. And he was interacting with them, and they were amazed at his response. And then within three days, well, I don't know if it was three days' journey away, or it took them three days to get back, I can't remember. They were three days away, I think, ultimately. They realized that Jesus was gone, that he wasn't a part of the big, you know, must have had a big group. You know, I have a lot of compassion on them because, you know, even today as we're going to church, it's like we have to make sure. You got, who, who do you have with you? I've got this person. You got that person? We have to make sure because of our size of our family that we have everybody with us. So they go back, and Mary goes up to Jesus and says, you know, what are you doing? you not realize how you have distressed us? And Jesus responds, I am, did you not know that I had to be about the work of my Father? Now you might kind of think, well, that, he's acting like a little bit of a spoiled brat there. No, he's not. Remember, Jesus is not this bold brat. He is ultimately still focusing on what his ultimate calling is to his heavenly father. And immediately right after that, just, just as if Luke was anticipating that we would go, if one of my kids said something like that, he says that, he, that Jesus submitted to his parents. And then those are the words that blow my mind. That Jesus Christ, the son of God, very God of very God, The firstborn of all creation submitted to these sinful parents. Why? To be obedient to the fifth commandment. He is obeying and fulfilling the very law of God. He is perfectly fulfilling both his honor to his heavenly father in being about the work that he was called to do ultimately, and then at the same time obeying his temporal earthly parents in Mary and Joseph. And then it says he grew in wisdom and stature. Mind blown once again. How in the world is that possible? Because he made himself. He grew up. As we see in verse 2 in Isaiah 53, that he was growing. I still can't put my mind around it, but he did that to be the obedient son. He had to become the obedient son because if we are to be children of God, he had to be made Like us, We see this throughout the Gospels, how Jesus is perfectly masterful at obeying the fifth commandment, both to his heavenly father and to his earthly parents. He's preaching to his disciples, and his mother and his brothers show up later on, and they think he's crazy. We see when we put all the Gospels together, they're asking to talk to him, and we know that they're ultimately wanting to talk to him because they think he's crazy. And he responds to them, and he tells them, when they say, hey, Jesus, your mom and your brothers are here to see you, he says, who are my mother and my brothers except those who do what? The will of God. He is using even that moment, and it doesn't give you a lot of beefiness of understanding what's going on in the mind of of Mary and the brothers for certainty, other than they think he's crazy, but he's saying that there is something greater than even here. Before them in these particular families, this is a greater family that he's actually preaching and teaching about. And then eventually he actually preaches and teaches that to be a disciple, you must hate your mother and your father, your brother and your sister. And then we're like, whoa, what is he talking about? Well, we know that in Deuteronomy 33, we see that the priesthood is given to the tribe of Levi, because they did something differently when there was the worship of the golden calf. When there was the worship of the golden calf, they did not worship, and they did not do the same things that the others did. And it says in Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 8, it says, Give to Levi your Thuman and your Urim, to your godly one, whom you tested at Massah, with whom you quarreled at the waters of Meribah, who said of his father and his mother, I regard them not. He disowned his brothers and ignored his children, for they observed your word and kept your covenant. He's actually the fulfillment of what the priesthood is all about. He is actually the fulfillment of what Israel was supposed to bow. He is not going to bow down to the false god. He's not going to worship wrongly the right god. He's going to worship as we see When he is being tempted by Satan, he's going to worship the heavenly father exactly as his father has taught him to do. And so he's making distinctions for us. We know that it's hyperbole when Jesus is saying that you must hate your mother and your father. We know it's hyperbole in a sense of just how he's reacting with Mary when he's coming out of the temple. Because we're looking at it and we go, this seems disrespectful. No, we understand that Jesus must ultimately be about the fulfillment of the heavenly father's call. Not because he truly hates his mother or his father or his brothers or his sisters but because he actually ultimately loves them. And then we see the pinnacle of that in the pinnacle of our, of our salvation when Jesus is on the cross. Here he is actually fulfilling the very commandment and calling that his father has given him. He says that the father loves me because I lay down my life. He's laying down his life for his people out of obedience to his father And then he looks down to John, and he tells John, take care of my mother. John, your mother. Mother, your son. He is making sure he is truly not just saving his very mom's soul, he is still taking care of her life. It teaches us so much about how great Jesus fulfills the fifth commandment. But he fulfills the fifth commandment by being the recipient of violence. We know that in Genesis chapter 9, that we are told before we even receive the commandments, that human life is as full of sanctity because human life bears the image of God. And we see in Genesis 9 that if there is the spilling of blood of a human life, that life must be taken. That is where we see that there is justice in capital punishment. Because human life is different than any other life. And it has to be that if one is taken, then life must be taken of the one who committed the murder. It is the very root and foundation of what the sixth commandment is all about. But we see something there, and we see it there in Deuteronomy, we also see it in Leviticus. There is something about the blood the blood that is spilt, that it is precious. That it points to something that is connecting us to understanding who God is. And that whenever it's spilled of a human being, that it is in defiance to the very image of God. We see in Colossians 1 that it says that Jesus is the image of God. That he is the firstborn of creation. But we also see in Colossians 1 that Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. What does that mean? is that he is the one that brought forth of all creation, and he was there at creation, but he's also the one that is going to redeem the dead. Well, how does he redeem the dead? Well, we rewind a little bit in Isaiah chapter 52, the very last verse. It says that, So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told to them they see and which they have not heard, they understand. It is by the very violence that we see going through all of Isaiah 53 that it is his blood being shed, that someone murdering him, that he fulfills that covering for us. I too, Marus, am amazed that in our confession that we see that Jesus sings to us. That is such a wonderful thought. We see it also in Hebrews chapter two. It says, I will tell your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Everything about 53 is about our inheritance that we have in Jesus Christ. We must recognize his sonship. We must have a grasp, and I I could go on and on about the sonship of Jesus Christ. And and I'm tempted to it because there's so many passages. And if you look in the sermon notes in the order of worship, I threw out all kinds of reference. And I just was going crazy. like, oh, this passage, this passage. And y'all were probably like, oh, my goodness, he's going to preach a sermon that's going to last two hours long. But we have to understand that he's not just the suffering servant to be able to understand the great gift and riches that we have in Jesus, that he had to be the faithful son. Because if we go here in verse 10, it says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. We see that it is the delight of the Father to crush him, to discipline him. Is it because he's some kind of killjoy that just wants to, and some kind of sadistic monster? No. He's making an offering for guilt. Whose guilt? Our guilt. But then we see also the promise of resurrection in the next part of verse 10. It says, He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. What was the second part of the fifth commandment? That it will go well with him all of the days of his life. Here Jesus is not just receiving an earthly benefit of obedience to the fifth commandment. His obedience is the prolonging of life for eternity, but not just for him, but for his Offspring. Well, how can there be offspring? We don't see that Jesus had any children on this earth. We are the offspring, as Jesus says, when he sings before the Father. Behold, I and the children God has given me. Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. We inherit the son's righteousness because of violence that is placed upon him and his blood is poured out upon us. This is the fullness of our hope. He had to obey the fifth commandment. He had to be the faithful son and he had to perfectly, beyond any other way of being perfect about it, obey the sixth commandment so that he may take the guilt offering for us. He bears our iniquities in verse eleven. Therefore, I will divide him; up, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Now, I, I feel like there's always needs to be an application of understanding how we can be most faithful with the the sixth commandment, and I've already mentioned that one of the things in our most most faithful way of doing it is bringing those who protect life to stand for the image of God. But it also may mean that we have to take life to preserve life. But because we have that particular calling, it's important for us that even though jurisdictionally at times we do have the command and calling to take life, it must be in obedience to the fifth commandment to obey authority, to obey the authorities that the Lord has given us. We don't have the sword in our own hands to do whatever we like. Now, someone can come in here and begin to harm us and try to take our lives. And jurisdictionally and circumstantially, we do have a right to defend our lives. But if we hear about that across the street later on, outside of our immediate ability, we can't just say, you know what, let's just get up and get some pitchforks and torches and go after those people. We don't have that right. We have to obey the fifth commandment. But one of the things that Jesus does particularly on the cross for us though and how we can obey the sixth commandment is that because he is the one who takes the wrath, because he is the one who takes the vengeance that belongs to be placed upon us, then therefore we have the ability to say the vengeance is the Lord's and we trust in him. We trust in his means. We go back to the fifth commandment and we try to understand the fullness of the commandment of how we are to respond that when someone does something to us that we may feel like harming them. We can first understand that we are the transgressors that deserve the greatest violence. You now I've been hearing in the news about talk about celebrating Hitler again and, and rejecting the Holocaust. And, and one of the reasons why people are being anti-Jews is because the Jews killed Jesus. And then there's I've been seeing social media arguments. No, it was the Romans that killed Jesus. No, it was the Jews that killed Jesus. You know, and it's an age-old argument. What we need to come down to understand is that we killed Jesus. It says, and we want that to be the case because it says here in verse 12 that he was numbered with the transgressors. We are the transgressors. That Ultimately, the reason why Jesus faced the cross wasn't because of the Jews or the Romans. It was because of all of us that are his people. Those transgressors he's speaking of, we we want to not... If we're going to argue who are the ones, we want to be the ones. It was us because it was our iniquity that placed him on the cross. His obedience to the Father placed him on the cross. His love for his people... But it was our sins that were placed upon him, yet he bore the sin of many. And because of his gained sonship, because of his perfect obedience to the fifth and the sixth and all of the commandments, he is able to make intercession for the transgressors. Isn't that amazing that the son, he doesn't just pick up rocks, that he placed his life for the transgressors. I don't know why when I think about this, this passage, I imagine us as just kind of laying dead in the, in the mud. And that he's just there with us. I don't know why I'm thinking about laying down, but he, I guess it's just being as low as you can be low. And that he is there with us. So that he may raise us up. That is truly the greatest gift that we could have. May it be that every time you think about the fifth commandment and when you think about the sixth commandment, that you wouldn't just, you should be brought low to your own sinfulness about how we would maybe hate our brothers or hate our sisters or, or hate anyone except the enemies of God. <laughs> and it's hard to go, who are the enemies of God? When we see that we are like the enemies of God, it should humble us but we should be thinking about what great gift we have that Jesus fulfilled, both the fifth and the sixth commandment. That he not only gave us the inheritance, but an eternal life. That we are to be called sons of God. Let us pray.